Good morning to everyone. Uh, two years ago, I had to go back and check. Um, my memory's starting to go, I guess. But uh, two years ago, I preached a, a series here on the Psalms of Ascent. Hard to believe it was two years ago. So that's Psalms uh, 120 through 134. Uh, when I completed that series, I madly uh, started to write a book based on that series. And it uh, recently came out, uh, Longing for Home, a journey through the Psalms of Ascent. Let me just read a brief excerpt. Uh, the Psalms of Ascent are a catalog of human experience, a catalog of human experience. They take us on a journey through life's many ups and downs. In so doing, they shape our perspectives, regulate our feelings, and inform our judgments. They guide us into the path of God-glorifying desires, God-magnifying emotions, and God-honoring thoughts. They equip us to pray in faith as they beckon us to fix our eyes heavenward. Whenever we feel besieged on our journey, we tend to turn to whatever we think can help us. Another program, another seminar, another counselor. Far too often, however, we neglect the help God has given us. In the book of Psalms, and the Psalms of Ascent in particular, in them, we connect with people who have traveled the very road we're traveling. If we listen carefully, they teach us how to look to God in every circumstance of life. And they demonstrate how this shift in our perspective strengthens our faith and enlarges our hope. Um, so this is something I labored at for quite a while. I could, um, I could write some of your names over the chapters. I didn't dare do that, and I won't do that now. Don't you dare ask me who I was thinking of when I wrote some of these chapters. But I could have written a fair number of names over each of these chapters. I had you in mind, and me, obviously, and my family in mind as I put pen to paper and came up with this. Uh, I have books to give away. They're out there on a white table, enough for uh, one per family. So if you're a family of one or a family of ten, you get, uh, you get one copy. I probably need to put someone out there to supervise that. Someone with a look of intimidation. Alan, you're up. Take Carol along as backup to make sure uh, one per family. Uh, don't get confused. The church has already ordered some. They're on the shelves with a price on the back. Don't go near those. These ones that I'm offering you are on the white table. You can't miss them as you leave today. As you go through the foyer, please take one per family. And I pray the Lord will bless, uh, bless that work to you. Turn with me now, not to the Psalms of Ascent, but to the book of Romans. The book of Romans. Today we are going to leave chapter 9. We've only got three or four verses left there. And we are going to ease our way into chapter 10, the first three verses. Before we do that and look specifically at those verses, I want to bid farewell to Romans chapter 9 by repeating for you briefly, again, the five reasons I gave you when we started our study of Romans 9 
The five reasons I gave you as to why I was glad, I was excited, we were in that particular passage of Scripture. Again, Romans 9, five reasons why I was glad we were there. Here they are again for you, quickly, briefly. I'm certainly not going to say what I said then, but by way of reminder, as we bid farewell. First reason was this, Paul's unwavering commitment to doctrine. We see it here in unparalleled fashion, don't we? Paul's unwavering commitment to doctrine. He tackles some of the Bible's most difficult theological concepts. And he does so because he's a pastor. He is deeply theological because he is deeply pastoral. And he knows it is impossible to grow spiritually without doctrine. That was the first reason I was glad we were here. Second reason is this. Paul's staggering portrayal of God's greatness. Paul defines all things according to God's glory. All things according to God's glory. He views the knowledge of God as an end in itself. What could be more profitable than knowing God? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The third reason, Paul's irrepressible delight in God's sovereignty. His entire paradigm for thinking rests on this premise, God is the only sovereign. Let me state it in slightly different terms. God is an absolute monarch. Paul's irrepressible delight in God's sovereignty. Reason number four, Paul's complete lack of enthusiasm for humanity. He defines all things according to God's glory. And in so doing, he leads us away. He gently leads us away from celebrating ourselves to worshiping God and how we need to hear that in our day. And the fifth reason was as follows. Paul's assertion that the doctrine of election establishes the simple gospel. It is impossible to preserve and protect the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, without the doctrine of election. He has made that abundantly clear in Romans chapter 9. So there you have it. Five reasons. There are others. Five chief reasons why I was so glad. I thought it was so timely that we were in Romans chapter 9. Now we're going to bid farewell and ease into chapter 10. Follow along as I begin reading in verse 30, verse 30 of chapter 9, as far as verse 3 of chapter 10. What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Just a couple of questions at the outset. Question number one is this. How do we explain why some people believe in Christ? 
How do we explain why some people believe in Christ? Let me personalize it. You're a Christian, assuming you're a Christian. How do you explain why you are a Christian? Having studied most of Romans chapter 9, I pray our answer to that question is crystal clear, God's sovereignty. The answer resides in the wonder of God's mercy as revealed in his purpose of election. I know that given my sin, apart from God's sovereign grace, uh, my condition was helpless and it was hopeless. There's the answer to that question. How do we explain why some people believe in Christ? If anyone is saved, the reason is God's sovereignty. Now a follow-up question. How do we explain why some people don't believe in Christ? How do we explain why some people don't believe in Christ? Please, please get this. The answer is not God's sovereignty. The answer is not God's purpose of election. The answer is what? Man's responsibility. The answer is what? Man's obstinacy. Oh, please be clear on this. When it comes to the decree of predestination and the realization of God's decree of predestination, he accomplishes it in the lives of his believers by sovereign grace. He is the cause. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called in a moment of time. And having called them, and they having believed in response to that call, they are made one with the Lord Jesus. And all whom he has called, therefore he is justified. And all whom he has justified, he is glorified. But the realization of God's eternal decree of predestination, when it comes to those who do not believe, God does not cause their unbelief. He is not the cause of evil. Why is it that some people do not believe? It is simply for the following reason. It is because of their own free will they choose not to believe. And God willingly passes them over. But he does not cause their unbelief. He does not, before the beginning of time, decree that individual's not going to be saved. I'm going to make sure they're not saved. And I'm going to prevent them from being saved. That is not the doctrine of predestination. That is not the doctrine of election. In the doctrine of predestination, in the realization of that doctrine, insofar as it concerns Christians, God is active. Insofar as it concerns those who do not believe, God is not active. He simply willingly gives them up to do whatever resides in their hearts to do. Man is responsible. And the answer to that question, why is it or how do we explain why some people don't believe in Christ? Here it is. If anyone is condemned, the reason is man's obstinacy. Are you clear on that? If you aren't clear on that, please don't talk about the doctrine of predestination because you will simply muddy the waters. Please, 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 please be clear on that. How do we explain why some people believe in Christ? If anyone is saved, the reason is God's sovereignty. How do we explain why some people don't believe in Christ? If anyone is condemned, the reason is man's obstinacy. Paul has dealt with the first in Romans 9 all the way through to verse 29. He's now going to deal with the second. Beginning right there in verse 30 of chapter 9. And he's going to handle this. He's going to stick with this. All the way through to the end of chapter 10. Look at what he says in verse 21 of chapter 10. But of Israel, he says, 
All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. That's the reason why some people don't believe. It is because they are an obstinate and contrary people. And of their own free will, a free will that is in bondage to sin, they refuse to believe. That is Paul's main theme now, his discourse. Again, I hope you got it. From chapter 9, verse 30, all the way through to chapter 10, verse 21. Obviously, we're not taking it all on this morning. Bite size. I've given it to you. I've read it for you. Chapter 9, verse 30, only so far as chapter 10, verse 3. What I really want to do, what I'm itching to do, or what good Texas expression, what I'm fixing to do, <laughs> is to give you seven reasons why these verses are so important. Uh, why these verses should grab our attention and hold our attention. But before I do that, I need to explain this text, these verses. Let me do so by giving you four simple facts. If you get these facts, you get the text. I'm not going to give you them in order. I'm going to jump around in these verses. And I hope that isn't too distracting. But if you get these four facts, one, two, three, four, you've got the sense of the text. And then I can give you seven reasons why it is so important for us. Here is fact number one that Paul declares here. The Jews possess zeal without knowledge. That's fact number one. Where do we read that? Verse 1 of chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. You look up that word zeal in the dictionary, and you'll find, oh, synonyms, something like enthusiasm, excitement. I think we understand the nature, the significance of the term. Uh, we see zeal all around us in our day. We see zeal when it comes to sports, right? Maybe a little too much of it. We see zeals especially start, zeal especially starting now in the realm of politics. We see zeal when it comes to people's personal convictions. We see zeal when it comes to people's special causes, special interest groups. We know what zeal is. This kind of unbridled enthusiasm. Well, Paul's point is this. Look, my fellow countrymen, the Jews, ethnic Israel, I want you to understand this. Here's what I'm declaring. They are zealous. There's no denying it. They have a lot of enthusiasm. You look at their devotion to the temple. Look at the way in which they tithe. Look at their sacrifices. Look at their commitment to their rituals and their rites and their traditions and their ceremonies and everything else. I'm not disputing that for one moment. I'm not saying, look, they're a lazy people, a slothful people. No, I know it. As a matter of fact, I was just like them. Oh, they are zealous. Oh, but it is zeal without knowledge. It is, to put it in slightly different terms, an ignorant zeal. How so? Two ways. Brings us to fact two and fact three. Fact number two is this. The Jews are ignorant of what God wants. Ignorant of what God wants. Where do we read that? Back in chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? The Gentiles. You see, the majority of believers in Paul's day, our day, from among the Gentiles, who did not pursue righteousness, 
They were on the outside looking in. They didn't have the law. That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. Now the contrast, verse 31. But that Israel, ethnic Israel, the Jews, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. Nothing wrong with the law. What was the problem? Verse 32. Why? Because they did not pursue it. By faith, but as if it were based on works. And so the Jews are ignorant of what God wants. What is the goal? The goal is righteousness. The goal is a right standing in God's sight. The goal is a legal verdict whereby God declares just, righteous. How did the Jews pursue that goal as they approached the law and lived under the law? They did so on the basis of what? Works. They did not understand what it was God really wanted. They did not understand how to get to the goal, how to achieve righteousness. They were convinced that what God wanted was their personal conformity to this law, and they thought they possessed the ability to attain it. The Gentiles flocking into the church, they were ignorant when it came to the law. But here they are believing on the Lord Jesus, right, left, and center. Why? Because they understand that this righteousness is attained by faith. Oh, but the Jews, so zealous, filled with enthusiasm, bubbling over, impossible to contain. Oh, but it is zeal without knowledge, ignorant of what God wants. Third fact is this, the Jews are ignorant of what man Needs Jumping back into chapter 10, verse 3 now. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God. And seeking to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Ignorant of what man needs. What does man need? Righteousness. But guess what? It's not his righteousness. He needs someone else's righteousness. But because the Jews were confused, actually, I think we can say it stronger than that, willfully ignorant when it came to the demands and the requirements of the law, and they were obstinate, and they had this idea that they could attain it by works, ignorant of what God wanted, therefore they were ignorant of what man really needs, and they were convinced that they could establish themselves their own righteousness. I will stand before God on the basis of my righteousness. And I will produce this righteousness on the basis of my works. And all the while they misunderstood that God's righteousness, the provision of God's righteousness, is His beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And one attains to a right standing in God's sight by being united through faith with God's righteousness, the Lord Jesus Christ. Rather than establishing our own righteousness, rather than thinking we can bring our works, our performance, our lives before his judgment throne, 
and declaring, this is what I will stand upon. This is what I will bring. This is what I want you to judge. Oh, they were zealous. But it was zeal without knowledge, ignorant of what God wants, ignorant of what man needs. And the fourth fact is this. Owing to their ignorance, the Jews stumble over Christ. Back now to the ninth chapter. Middle of verse 32. They have stumbled. They have tripped over the stumbling stone. As it is written, a citation from the book of Isaiah. Actually, a couple of references kind of mushed together from the book of Isaiah. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. What was the context? The context, you go back to Isaiah's day, is the Assyrian invasion. Enough is enough. God is now going to punish Israel for her spiritual adultery, her spiritual harlotry. And the instrument of his justice, his judgment, is going to be the Assyrian Empire, the Assyrians. But God tells them, look, I will put a rock. I will lay this foundation, this rock in Zion. The rock is whom? It is God himself. And God is saying, look, you must trust in me. You must rest in me. Don't go to the Egyptians trying to make an alliance with them. You really think they're going to be able to help you? Don't look around at the other nations and enter into these alliances. No, the Assyrians are coming. And the only one who can help you is me, is what he says to them. But if you refuse to turn to me... And if you refuse to rest in me, then this rock, which could provide such stability and such salvation, it will actually become a stumbling stone. And you'll actually be thrashed and crushed against it. That's the context. Paul says, very interesting how Paul handles the Old Testament, isn't it? Valuable lesson there, but we don't have time to get into it. He says, look, that's fulfilled today. That's what's going on today. God's judgment is all around us. God's judgment is coming. Oh, but praise God, there is a rock. And the rock is the Lord Jesus Christ. And all who are one with the Lord Jesus Christ through faith, when the flood waters of God's judgment comes upon them, they will not be moved. Oh, but for all who reject the rock, all who actually end up stumbling over, tripping over the rock, all who insist in their own works and establishing their own righteousness before God, all who refuse that righteousness provided in the Lord Jesus Christ, well, guess what? The rock will no longer be a refuge of stability. It will actually be the means of judgment and destruction. That is what he is saying. And that is the fourth fact he is affirming here concerning the Jews. Oh, they possess zeal without knowledge. That is fact number one. Fact number two, they are ignorant of what God wants. Fact number three, they are ignorant of what man needs. And fact number four, owing to their ignorance, the Jews stumble over, they trip over the rock, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why they refuse to believe in him. Seven reasons why these verses should grab our attention. Seven reasons. Why this text is important. Here we go. Reason number one. Here we see why people reject Christ. Here we see, we really see, why people reject Christ. It is not because they're really smart or intelligent. 
That's often how the slant they will put on it. It's not the reason. It's not because of their struggle with theodicy or any other perplexing theological questions. It's not because of their philosophical pursuit and their desire to be true to the great philosophical questions of what is good, what is true, what is right. No, when we get past all these surface issues, we discover at the foundation in every case why it is people reject Christ. It is because they misdiagnose their problem. That's it. It is that simple, folks. They misdiagnose their problem. How? They minimize their sin. That's what the Jews had done. They minimized their sin. They minimized the extent, the height, the depth of their problem before a holy God. You see, some people conclude that salvation is needless. They conclude that salvation is needless. I don't need it. Because they've misdiagnosed the problem. I'm okay. I'm okay. I think I've lived a pretty good life. Therefore, salvation is needless. Therefore, the Lord Jesus Christ is needless. That individual becomes irreligious. Some people conclude that salvation is attainable. See, they too have misdiagnosed the problem. I'm not really that bad. You know, a couple of peccadilloes, that sort of thing. But I think I can establish my own righteousness. I think I can do what it is God requires of me. They think salvation is attainable. And therefore, they reject Christ. Why? They don't think they need them. These people become what? Not irreligious. They become what? Religious. Very religious. That was the Jews. I guarantee it right now. And some will say, oh, you're, you're, that you're, you're guilty of oversimplification. This is not oversimplification. This is just basic, basic, basic anthropology. The way we function, peering into the soul. We are smug. That's all there is to it. We are smug by nature. And we refuse to acknowledge the depth of our problem. We refuse to. We will not go there. Why? Because the head of our problem is what? Pride. So why would we ever go there? To probe the depths of our sin. And so because we misdiagnose the problem, we misdiagnose our need. And we will go in one of two directions again. Either we will therefore think salvation is needless. That explains the irreligious. Or we will think salvation is attainable by my effort. And that explains the religious. There you have it. A lesson well learned. We see why people reject Christ. Don't be distracted. It is simply because they misdiagnose their problem. Second important truth here is this. We see how to make sense of the world's religions. We see how to make sense of the world's religion. And so some of us went uh, recently to, to Utah, uh, witnessed among the, the Mormons, right? Wow, a lot of zeal, tremendous zeal. I remember when Alice and I were missionaries in Portugal. I was sharing this with someone recently. And, um, oh, I, I, barely a day could go by where I didn't see two bright, young, good-looking American men in their black pants, white shirt, name tag, elder so-and-so in the tie. And there they were going door-to-door. Zealous. Oh, such zeal. How do we explain such zeal? Islam, the five pillars of Islam, what it is to be a good Muslim. And you, you, you look at Ramadan and the fasting and, and the asceticism which, which characterizes much of Islam. And you say, wow, what, what zeal. You look at Roman Catholicism. I just made reference to Portugal. 
still burned in my mind, impressed upon my mind, where we live so close to a little village called Fatima, where apparently the Virgin Mother appeared to five little shepherd children decades and decades ago, and they built a huge shrine in celebration of Fatima. And two times a year, they would have these pilgrimages to Fatima to celebrate, to worship, to adore. Let's call it what it was, the Virgin Mother, the Virgin Mary. And people would come from all over Portugal. We'd be driving down the highway, and you see these people walking in bare feet along the side of the road, and their feet just mangled. You go to Fatima, and by the time some of them are there, they're on their knees, prostrate, and they're just crawling to this shrine of Fatima. Oh, such zeal. That ever trouble you? Because then I look at my life, I don't see too much zeal. You ever troubled by that? They're so zealous. Maybe they're right. There is such a thing as zeal without knowledge. This is how we explain the world's religions. Because all of the world's religions hear this. Even many so-called expressions of Christianity misdiagnose the problem. Therefore, present a faulty remedy. And therefore, stumble over the rock, the Lord Jesus Christ, and ultimately reject the provision that God has made in Christ. Why? Because they've misdiagnosed the problem, therefore thinking it is something they can attain by their own effort. It is a righteousness that they themselves can establish. And this is what accounts for the zeal but it is a zeal marred and scarred by ignorance. Third reason is this, why this text is important. We see what we must do to be saved. Perhaps you aren't a Christian. I'm speaking directly to you right now. Here we see what we must do to be saved. This is the starting point right here. I must reject any notion of my righteousness and accept God's righteousness. So I don't know, you're sitting there right now and I've got your attention. You know, I'm not a Christian. I'm wrestling with this stuff. What, 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 what do I need to do to be saved? This is the starting point right here. You must start right here. It is rejecting any notion of your righteousness. And it is accepting the righteousness of God. Who is the righteousness of God? It is Jesus Christ. You want to be one with Christ. Because he then becomes your righteousness by which you stand righteous before God. That's what you want. You want to be one with Christ, the righteousness of God, so that God himself will declare you just righteous in his sight. Listen carefully, my friend. This is what God says to you this morning. When I accept you, when I accept you, I know you might think this is bold on my part, but this is just the affirmation of the teaching of Scripture. This is what God says to you. When I accept you and forgive you and declare you righteous in my sight, I only do so. I only do so. Third time. I only do so on the basis of my son's righteousness. Perfect righteousness. Performed by my son is the only righteousness that I will accept in my court. 
Therefore, you must believe in my son. Do not trip over my son, daring to presume that by your own works, you can establish your own righteousness on the basis of your performance. No, you must believe on my son. And through belief, oh, you become one with him by the Holy Spirit. And becoming one with him, the penalty he paid for your sin becomes effective in your life, insofar as I'm concerned. And his perfect righteousness is now yours. And I declare you righteous. I declare you just in my sight. Here it is. There are only two ways of thinking out there. Are you ready? Here they are. God accepts me because I obey. God accepts me because Christ obeyed. That's it. Doesn't get any simpler than that. Forget everything that came before. You now have permission to turn off with everything that's coming. Just those two statements. God accepts me because I obey. God accepts me because Christ obeyed. Which is it, my friend? Which is it? God accepts me because I obey. That might lead to a great deal of zeal. But it will be zeal without knowledge. God accepts me because Christ obeyed. He is the rock that God has established. Judgment is coming. And it will be horrific. You want to be standing somewhere that will not be moved. You want to be standing on something that will not be shaken. You want to be standing on something that will not be thoroughly destroyed in the waters of God's judgment that are coming. They're coming. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Justice delayed is not justice forgotten. It's coming. Where are you standing? You must be standing upon this rock, this refuge that will not move. That is how we are saved. Fourth reason why these verses are important. We see that legalism is a constant threat. It's a constant threat. Now check that, please. Legalism is not a synonym for sanctification. Someone starts talking about sanctification. Do not dismiss them as a legalist. That might just, that might just prove you're an antinomian. Don't like the law. Just don't like rules or obedience, Right? Legalism is not a synonym for sanctification. It is not a synonym for obedience. Legalism arises when we explain God's acceptance of us in terms of merit. That's all legalism is. Legalism arises when we explain God's acceptance of us in terms of merit. It is the Pharisee of old. Oh my God, I thank you I am not like him. Who? Tax gatherer. Tax collector, right? You remember that one? The publican. We hear that. All right, move on. That's supposed to have some profound impact upon tax collector? Yeah, I don't like the IRS, but I, I don't, I don't, that's not really registering with me. If the Pharisee were living today and Christ were speaking and pointing to him as an example today, what do you think he might have said? I think he might have said something like this. My God, I thank you. I'm not a homosexual applying for a marriage license. My God, I thank you. I'm not like one of those idiots who works at Planned Parenthood. Oh, I thank you, God. I'm different. There's something about me that sets me apart. Do not misunderstand me. Are those sins horrific? Yes. 
Should we publicly denounce those sins? Yes. Should we thank God for his restraining grace in our lives that has kept us from such sin? Yes. But do we dare think there is something in us that accounts for that difference between us and them? If you do, you're a raving hypocrite and you're a legalist and you still don't get the gospel. You still don't get it. Oh, the depravity of our own hearts. The only thing that makes me differ is the free, sovereign mercy and grace of God. From that posture, yes, I speak against sin. Yes, I denounce sin. Yes, I denounce man's depravity. That is fine. But I number myself among them. And I realize the only thing that has set me apart, the only thing that has differentiated me, oh God, I thank you. I'm like that, that tax collector. You and me, God. We got it together here. I'm all right. I had never done that. And thank you that I'm as good as I think I am and not like that. That is the cry of the legalist. And how legalism is a constant threat. Why? As Luther said, each of us has a pope in our belly. A pope in our belly. We will cry out for some cause in us for our self-justification. Oh, there must be something in me. There must be something I did. There must be something I've done. Something I didn't do. Something I haven't said. That separates me from the masses, thereby explaining God's favor toward me. And oh, my friend, it is grace from the beginning. It is grace to the end. Oh, watch for the legalism. The fifth reason, fifth reason why this text is so important is this. We see that it's possible to possess zeal without knowledge. We see that it's possible to possess zeal without knowledge. I decided it was time to try out Dunkin' Donuts the other day in Granbury. Just doing my part. <laughs> Support the local business. And um, the table behind me, fascinating conversation. I'm such a coward. I should have said something. I'm kicking myself now and I'd say something. But five or six women gathered at the table behind me. And each from these different churches, kind of religions, things. And they were talking about what one believed, what the other believed, and how one church functioned, the other church functioned, and my cousin's new wife, and my grandpa's brother, and he goes there, and he does all that, 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 that. And finally, at the end of it all, the conclusion was what? Well, it doesn't really matter what you believe. You know it. You've heard it. As long as you're sincere. It doesn't really matter what you believe. As long as you are sincere. Yes, it does, my friend. It mattered to the Apostle Paul. There is a difference between white and black, day and night, being in and being out. There is a difference between truth and error. That is so apparent in this epistle. It is so apparent in the word of God. There is such a thing. I know it's unpopular in our day. There is such a thing as absolute truth. The truth will set you free. And that is clear when it comes to the Jews' example. Oh, so zealous. Well, God will save them on the basis of their sincerity. Is that Paul's posture? They're lost. And they are accursed. Sincerity doesn't save anyone. Enthusiasm won't save anyone. Experience won't save anyone. A knowledge of the truth as revealed in God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the only means of salvation. Here's a sex, the sixth reason. We see what it means to long for the salvation of others. Paul's example, again, first verse of chapter 10. Brothers, 
my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. He's already led us down this path. You go back into the previous chapter. It's even more startling what he says here. Do you remember the third verse? But I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Such zeal for evangelism. Such enthusiasm for the salvation of others. I was challenged years ago, and I go back to it every so often, by something penned by John Newton. You're all familiar with that name. John Newton, he wrote the following. Jesus. Jesus, full of compassion and tenderness, wept over his enemies and prayed for his actual murderers. A feeling of this kind seems essential to the new nature which characterizes the children of God. Oh, when we look at the ungodly, we are not to hate them. We are to pity them. We are to mourn over them. And we are to pray for them. Oh, the spirit of the Apostle Paul. One of my favorite, well, among my favorite stories is that of John Wesley. I don't have everything against Wesley. He was pretty good in some areas. John Wesley, years ago I was in England and I uh, went to Bunhill Fields, the cemetery where many of the Puritans, the dissenters are buried. Right across from Bunhill Fields is, is Wesley's chapel. Went in for a little visit and read up on Wesley. And was talking about when he first started out on his, on his preaching tours and, and his call to preach and proclaim the gospel. And he went to his hometown where he was from. And he asked the rector of the church for permission to, uh, you know, preach on a Sunday or a weeknight, Saturday morning, middle of the night, whenever. The rector said no. Why? Because he'd heard of what Wesley was doing back in London. And he'd heard about this, this, this truth that Wesley was, uh, was proclaiming and the gospel wanted nothing to do with him. You know what Wesley did? He went to the graveyard because his grandfather had been the rector of that church, the pastor of that church. He went to the graveyard, the graveyard found his grandfather's tombstone, stood on the thing and started preaching. And there he preached for days upon days, and the people came. And the revival that occurred, oh, such zeal. Zeal for the lost. Zeal for the accursed. Zeal for those separated from God. We see the Spirit here in the Apostle Paul. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. The seventh final truth that emerges here, seventh thing I want you to see is this. We see that those who believe in Christ will not be put to shame. Comes right out of verse 33, the citation out of the book of Isaiah, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Notice the, sec the second statement. See, it all depends on how you approach him. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Shame. In case we didn't get it, Paul's going to repeat himself in the 10th chapter, verse 11. For the scripture says, these are actually the verses we're memorizing, right? For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Why not? Let me sum it up as follows. Here we go. By faith, we are united to Christ, the rock. The refuge built 
by that union, we possess the righteousness of God. Build upon that righteousness. The justice and mercy of God are engaged to justify us. We will not be put to shame. The old hymn writer penned it as follows. Mine is the sin, but thine the righteousness. Mine is the guilt, but thine the cleansing blood. Here is my robe, here is my refuge, and here is my peace. Thy blood, thy righteousness, O Lord my God, our Heavenly Father. We do praise you for your Son, the Lord Jesus. We praise you because there is no other name given among men by which we must, we can be saved. We thank you that we find in him all that we need for the salvation of the soul. We thank you that he becomes to us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And we praise you for the great grace and great mercy which are found in him alone. Receive our thanks this day as we offer. Receive our worship for you are indeed a great God. And hear us as we intercede for those unbelievers in our midst. That you might indeed be merciful. That you might indeed help them to diagnose the problem. That you might show them how, fall, how far they fall short of your glory. And that you might turn them from self to you. You might turn them from sin to Christ. And you might reveal the glories and the beauties of the gospel. And all that is ours in the Lord Jesus. We ask this of you in his precious name we pray. Amen.